0: So the last 10 days of Jesus' life begin in Jericho. Now, the historical details are impossible to tease out and tell exactly what happened which day, but we can get a pretty good picture by what we have. There are four primary first century tellings of this story, and you may have heard of other Gospels, but there's really only the main four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that have any historical reliability to them. But these are not like investigations or news articles. They're written more like movies. So imagine like four movies all based on a true story, but produced in different countries by different directors in different decades, each telling a story in a way that suits their agenda in their culture and time. So they're each telling this story, and they tell it by memory, and they tell it from some sources that had just circulated around the Christian community some 30 to 60 years after it happened. Now, all of them, though, they spend their time on Jesus' ministry time, this short period of Jesus' life that was anywhere from a few months to no more than three years long. They spend 83 out of 88 of the gospel chapters on this period of Jesus' life. We get almost nothing of the rest of his life. So Jesus spends his ministry, mostly in Galilee. He possibly comes to Jerusalem uh, or nearby a couple of times. And he's doing this ministry of healing people, feeding the sick, and preaching in synagogues and so forth. And he's gaining notoriety, and the word is getting out about this teacher who's going around the countryside doing these amazing things and saying that the kingdom of God is here, which was such a loaded term in their culture. People are getting excited because they think Israel's about to have a revolution and its day is coming again. And so all of the gospels tell the story like this. At some point, Jesus heads toward Jerusalem for his famous mission. Luke says that he turns his face Toward Jerusalem, like he gets his game face on, like you know, it's about to get real. So he sets out on this trip. We honestly don't know how long this one trip may have been, where most of the Jesus stories and miracles happen, because it's like an 80 to 100 mile or so trip. But they they go on this trip. They're on their way from this Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, Galilee region, down to Jerusalem on a mission to destroy an establishment. Now it's the Passover week coming up. So many Jews are naturally headed to Jerusalem on this pilgrimage that they went on every year, and the disciples, they know that they're headed there for Passover, and there are very likely lots of people in this crowd who think that when they get to Jerusalem, they're going to shake up the city, get it riled up, get the establishment religious Hebrews to rally behind them, knock off the Romans, claim back the temple, take the city back for God because God blessed Israel, and, and, and they're going to take their nation back. But whatever they're thinking, there's this famous leader that's going with them, and this is really cool because he's representing the hometown. Jesus was not a Jerusalem insider, so he was a Galilean, and they were proud to have this guy who was really exciting, doing amazing things up in their region because it showed that they were prominent and that they mattered too. So we don't know how many people went, but we were told several times that there were crowds. Now, the narrative of the crowd its really powerful in this story, such a big part of the story, and it's really funny because crowds are funny. They're so easy to get riled up. They're like a big animal. They're, they're so easy to manipulate. They're so easy to mislead and yet so powerful when you get them going in the right direction. And so often they can be completely sold out for a, a tribal cause that they're completely uneducated about, right? Does this ring a bell in the 21st century? So if you're the leader how frustrating can it be that you can get all these people behind your cause, and then so many of them have no clue that they're not even really behind your cause if they properly understood it, and they may work against it. And then they want to worship you one moment and kill you the next. And What I love about Jesus here is that he's unattached from the ups and the downs of the crowds. He uses them to accomplish his mission, but he does not get sucked into their hero worship of him. So they head south somewhere along the Jordan River, they have this crowd, this caravan of people going along with them and Jesus is saying these things like the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and killed, and his followers they're they're like clueless they're they're not getting it. Uh, he's, he's probably going all old school on us, like cryptic, like the prophets. And so the stories are pretty funny. Like these guys are there the whole time, and it, it is just flying right over them. And Jesus even says, I'm going to be killed, but they didn't recognize what he was saying. So uh, immediately they're, they're arguing about, like once they stomp on the Romans, hey, can I sit at your right and he sit at your left? And Jesus has got to be like, rolling his eyes going, look, the rulers of the other nations, you know, Rome, Babylon, Greece, Alexander the Great, They lord themselves over their people, but not here. Like, if you want to sit at the right hand of the ruler in this kingdom that I'm talking about, you have to be a servant or a slave to everyone in this kingdom. And so they're not getting it. They're probably like a lot of us who are like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, service. What a nice thing. I'll make sure our company does a service initiative and we slap a fish on it. Jesus is like, no, we're about to upend global dominance hierarchy starting with ourselves, right? Slightly bigger thing. And where does Yeshua take them? Jesus goes first into Jericho. Before he gets to Jerusalem, he goes to Jericho. When was the last time in the Bible that a crowd of Hebrews led by a man named Yeshua went to Jericho on a mission to destroy a large complex? Joshua. It's the same name as Jesus in their culture, Yeshua. Joshua was this Old Testament Hebrew Bible hero that had led the army conquest of Israel through the Promised Land some thousand years before Jesus came along. And he started in this city that Jesus is now at, Jericho. It was the first city that Joshua had conquered a thousand years earlier. The story was that Joshua did it just by his army marching around the walls and by blowing a trumpet and basically just announcing that the Lord, Yahweh, our God is here. And so he, the walls come crashing down, it says in the story. And by the way, we never found archaeological evidence that that actually happened. But he took the city just by marching around it and these seemingly impossible walls came down. Now, Hang on to that thought. Joshua and the guys conquer and kill everyone in Jericho. They, they commit genocide, basically, and they do the same thing to all these other cities. They, they take the promised land by force, and then they put their flag on it. They build their capital. They get a king just like the other nations. They have the golden years of Israel that culminate in this magnificent, opulent temple that, to, to bless the God who blessed them. And now there's this new Yeshua, and he's promising to destroy a large complex as well. Also in a few days, also not by physically attacking the walls, but by simply announcing that the Lord is here. But this time, Yeshua, Jesus, goes into Jericho, this famous old enemy territory, and he doesn't kill. This time, Jesus, the new Yeshua, his plan is to heal and connect and forgive those who are even enemies. And so he keeps on going to his own nation's complex. See, the real enemy is, is within, right? Change starts at home. The, the thing that we built whenever we killed our enemies that we were so proud of, that temple, that, that we put up our flag on it and stamped God's name on it, yeah, yeah, that's what the new Yeshua is going to destroy. Not enemy territory, not the other, but the self, the ego. This is about the evolution of consciousness over time, which still happens, by the way. It's, not the, it's the only way that you can properly understand the biblical narrative. It's moving forward. And Jesus is like, no, no, the only real way to kill out evil is to kill the evil within. So Jesus goes through Jericho, and here he loves his enemies and the outsiders. And this is funny. He just goes in. There's, there's no battles at the walls. Now, of course, it's not enemy territory anymore. But, right, there's still a, a lesson here. How often would we approach our enemies, guns blazing, and the walls go up? But they welcome him this time. This Yeshua is welcomed in because he's there to do good. He's not attacking people. Isn't it so funny how often others will welcome us if we offer them goodwill rather than arrows and bullets? But he comes into Jericho. I'm thinking it's Thursday night, a week before the Last Supper, and Friday morning he gets up and he starts on his way there are two sort of Jericho cities. There was the residential Jericho, the old town where people lived, and then a mile and a half away, there was municipal Jericho. Now, municipal Jericho was an outpost. It was a little smaller. It's for Herod the Tetrarch, where he had his winter palace there. It was basically city and government officials, wealthy people, who lived there. And the purpose was to separate it from the rest of the city, because you didn't want to be right up in the middle of the riffraff all the time. So, Jesus leaves residential Jericho, and he heads towards munis- municipal Jericho. And on the road, there are these two blind guys, which which is where beggars are going to be, right? This is prime real estate because uh, municipal Jericho is where the money is, and, and then no one lets them live in town, so they're outside of town, and then Jesus comes on this road. Now, Mark only mentions one of the blind guys and calls him Bartimaeus, which is an interesting name. It's like a hybrid Hebrew-Greek name, and it means the son of Timaeus who... Timaeus was a famous character in one of Plato's dialogues, so there, there could be something to that. Or he could have been a son of the Greek people or could have been a Hebrew guy who was Hellenized. But I- at any rate, he's not fully Hebrew. This name shows that he's like a little bit more of an outsider, which fits with where he's physically located. He's on the margins. He's one of the ones who's been cast out of the inner circle. And so the, the blind guys, or Bartimaeus, hear about Jesus And, and, and I, they know, I mean, like he's, there's all this talk about this master healer teacher who's healing people and he's here. This is like a huge moment for them, but listen to what they say. Whenever he starts coming down the road and this crowd is approaching, they start to yell out, son of David, have mercy on me. Now that's different. I mean, it's one thing to say teacher or to say healer or to say doctor or to compliment Jesus or sage or rabbi, but they pull out something way bigger than a compliment. They say, son of David, you're our king is what that meant in their culture. Not just a healer or a good guy or a teacher or a magician which is really fascinating up to this point, because there are all of these people that are following Jesus, and they're wanting healing and food and miracles and a show, but the first people to call him a king were blind guys and foreigners. They were the outsiders. They were the foreign magi that came to him when he was a baby, those astrologers. And then there was a Canaanite woman, definitely an outcast, and then you get blind guys. And so Jesus has this crowd, but he's not lost in it because he hears them through the crowd. He recognizes amidst the cacophony, like, Oh, I hear something different. Somebody sees something bigger going on here. So he calls him, and it says that Bartimaeus threw off his cloak, which is symbolic. He's throwing away the outer labels or the coverings that the world sees. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Which is funny because, come on, you know what he wants, right? If homeless guy taps you on the shoulder, you know what he wants. And he says to Jesus, I want to see, which is also funny. Because in the story, he's the only guy around who can actually see. And Jesus says, go. And then Bartimaeus receives his sight, but he doesn't go. He follows Jesus so this crowd with blind guys and riffraff, they walk a mile to municipal Jericho where the uppity people live, which I'm picturing is pretty funny because all these wealthy officials and this this crowd of people from the other side of the tracks come in, and it's half wow factor because there's a famous sage coming in, and then maybe half like, oh my gosh, whispers are, they're going to loot our stores and lock the public restrooms at the 7-Eleven. They make a big scene. There's this huge crowd once again, Jesus notices someone far off amidst the noise. And this time, it's not a good guy who's been kicked to the outside, but it's a corrupt guy who's worked his way up on the inside. His name, Zacchaeus. Now, that's a Hebrew Hebrew name, but he's totally a defector. He's a traitor. So ironically, his name meant pure or innocent, but he's Herod's chief tax collector. He's the head guy there of tax collecting, so one of the wealthiest and most important guys in the city, but he's kind of scum. Everyone hates him, right? At this point, he's part of the Roman occupation, but he's taxing his own people to death. It would have been better if he would have been Roman, but he's just a Hebrew traitor that his own people can't stand. So ironically, in in this Situation in this economy with this raucous crowd around Jesus, his money can't get him a position with Jesus because people turn on him and sort of like push him aside. You, You would think he might have a place to stand, but people are like, "Oh, I'm sorry, did did we box you out? I'm sorry." And the story goes that he can't see Jesus because of all of the people in the way. Right now, now this is a big theme through the Bible. The, the so-called people of God, the insiders who wear this divine name, the, the Hebrews, the Christians, or whatever, they're just standing in the way of the rest of the world from being able to see the image of something good or divine in their midst, right? Uh, and so uh, you can have all the right answers inside your little circle. And even though you have the right answers, it may be you're boxing people out or you're closed off walls that you've put up that are actually becoming the very evil thing that you think you've conquered. Because if you can't reconcile with your own family like this Hebrew Zacchaeus, what are you saying to the rest of the world about reconciliation? And so Jesus has a mission here to reconcile Zacchaeus with his family. Anyway, Zacchaeus is short. I'm getting ahead of myself. He climbs up into this tree to see Jesus, and Jesus sees him, which is another commentary on Jesus' ability to see outside the inner circle. Now, I'm guessing Jesus is fascinated because there's a wealthy man in the tree who would have obviously been wealthy by his dress. And Jesus sees this wealthy guy who obviously, like his money hasn't solved his problems. And Jesus says, hey, I'm coming to your house, which I love. He just invites himself over. Jesus is like, hey, I know with those clothes, you got a nice house. You got a lot of food. I'm here to eat. And Jesus treats him, get this, like family, And I can't help but wonder, like I wonder if Jesus didn't say, hey, here's my boy Bartimaeus, he's coming too, right? See, you have to appreciate Jesus, at at the risk of his popularity and his followers turning on him, brought people together. And this is not the first time, because nobody likes Zacchaeus. It says that the crowds began to grumble about Jesus, which is what jealous people do, right? They grumble. They were like, oh, Jesus, we thought you were like down with the man, And they're complaining that he goes into the house of a sinner. And you know some people are like, oh, he is so sucking up to the rich man. He's so pandering to the occupation. They're starting to doubt whether or not he's got a mission. He's rubbing elbows with the donors. He's just after money. But there's this moment where you're not sure if they might desert him, his followers. But then Jesus loves Zacchaeus to the point where Zacchaeus is moved and convicted Abe Lincoln said, to destroy your enemies, you got to make them your friend. And Zacchaeus is like, yeah, I've been a turd. And he gives away like half of his money to the poor. And he announces he's going to pay back everybody that he's cheated. Which is like everybody, right? He's, he, everybody he's cheated, he's going to pay them back four times as much. Now, here's the hilarious part. Think about the crowds. When the people find this out, that he's going to give them loads of money back, what are the crowds going to think about him now? The grumblers. <laughs> They're going to love Jesus again. Now, there's this play on Jesus' name. Yeshua means salvation. And Jesus says, salvation has come To this house, because this man too is one of our brothers, and we've got him back. And then Jesus calls Zacchaeus back to his name. See this Hebrew name Zacchaeus, it would have meant pure or transparent like glass or oil. But Jesus convicts him to be transparent again. See, salvation happens for people whenever we love people in such a way that it helps them remember who they are and then reconnect with their identity and their family. Just because Jesus went into his walls and loved him instead of attacking him. So Jesus in Jericho. He shows that his way of conquering the world is not by force. It's not by attacking the enemy in its walls. It's not by genocide, but it's by loving the enemy. He started with himself in the desert by reforming that on the inside, and now he's moving outward to reform that in the people around him. And he, Paradoxically, he does this first by bringing justice to the people outside the margins, at the bottom of the ladder, he treats them as equals, and then he moves up the ladder, and he brings justice as well to those in positions of high power by bringing them down. But it's not down, because they get to be equals again, and they get to be humans again, and they get to get back the humanity that they traded away for prestige. Jesus re- receives grace in the desert, and he finds reconciliation for himself, and then he goes to his lost family and brings reconciliation to them. Sort of like families in open circle, right? And, and this is where Jesus is headed next, the big family re- reunion in Jerusalem where all of his people are going to be gathered together. And I can't help but wonder if Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus didn't join Jesus on the road together.